Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back, everyone, to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined as always by my host, Dr. Danny Tolman, also a vestibular physical therapist. And today we have a special guest, and the reason he's so special is because Danny and, Ac- Danny and I actually both learned a lot from him at his Emory course on vestibular therapy and really all things vestibular. So... We are so excited to have Dr. Rick Daniel here. We have a two-part topic today. One is to talk about what it takes to become a good vestibular therapist, what kind of resources are out there, what courses are out there. And then the second part today, we'll talk about vestibular function tests, how they may impact your treatment, what we're looking for when we perform them, or even who performs them. So, Dr. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Well, thanks, Abby and, and Danny. Hey, I'm Rick Daniel. I'm a physical therapist. I've been practicing for a long time. Um, I received my PhD in behavioral neuroscience from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. I did a postdoctoral fellowship with Dr. Susan Herdman uh, at Johns Hopkins and have been on faculty at Duke and at Hopkins for the past, I guess I was at, I was at Hopkins for about seven years and I've been here for 17, 18 years at this point. So teach in the, uh, the DPT program at Duke, do research, see patients, run continuing education courses. I personally sat through the Emory certification as well as your advanced uh, vestibular rehab course, Education Resources Inc. So uh, you have you are a deep well of knowledge, especially in this field. You have been in this for so long. You have so many great things to offer everybody as far as treatments are concerned and testing and research. So why don't we get started about? how therapists can get trained to specialize in vestibular therapy, because it's not like there's any one specific way that they can go to start getting some additional training. Yeah, I think um, I, I think the best thing is you know, kind of depending on what they learned in um, school, just building on that, usually through continuing education courses um, and then clinical practice is the basic way. Um, I always think um, it's helpful to have colleagues to work with or folks in the community that where you can form, um, you know, study groups, journal clubs, whatever, but just a chance to uh, interact with other therapists um, in the community to kind of bounce ideas off of, et cetera. Um, if you're fortunate enough to work in a facility that has other clinicians doing, uh, interested in vestibular disorders, so otolaryngologists, neurologists, other PTs, OTs, audiologists, um, that's a nice interdisciplinary group. It's, it's nice to work together, um, arrange for conferences within that um, clinical setting to, um, further your education, um, get patient experience, things like that. Um, there's also 
there are different organizations out there. Um, so if you're a member of the American Physical Therapy Association and the neurology section, you can, there's a vestibular special interest group, which provides um, uh, lots of different information, both programming at CSM, but also um, resources on their website for clinicians, for patients, um, things like that. And there's also, uh, I'll put a little plug in here, for the American Balance Society. Um, the, the, I'm a member of the board of directors. There's no financial um, conflict of interest here, but it is a nice interdisciplinary uh, group. It's primarily um, audiologists, PTs, and physicians. Um, there, if you're a member of the group, you they have a journal club, a monthly journal club. Um, they have a conference every year in February in Phoenix, um, and it's a day and a half conference. And it's night. It's a mix between vestibular testing from the audiology standpoint, rehab, um, guest speakers. It's just a. It's a really nice conference if you're interested in vestibular issues. Why don't we back up a little bit and start okay. at that basic level? Like, uh, so PT school, you know, I had a really unique experience when I was in grad school because we, we got our first little taste of it in our neuro class, right? We learned about, you know, anatomy and the kind of basics of vestibular, but I was fortunate enough to take an elective course that was taught as like a con ed course over a weekend with Jeff Walter. And I had so much more exposure than I think a lot of other um, programs might have. What are the basics that that uh, physical therapists will learn about vestibular therapy in um, a DPT program? Oh, uh, that's, um, I think it depends on which program you go to and what they decide to teach. Um, kind of the, the question of what is entry level for vestibular rehab is a million dollar question that hasn't been answered yet. Um, do, there's a paper that was published, I think, earlier this year in the um, Journal of Physical Therapy Education, and they looked at the number of different programs and recommended things. And so it's anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, oh, common peripheral disorders like vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, things like that, central disorders. Um, in this paper, they the survey, the, the folks that they surveyed felt that all treatment or treatment of all kinds of BBPV, both posterior canal, anterior canal, horizontal canal, are part of entry-level education. Um, I can tell you here at Duke, we have a little bit of a different approach. Um, in the neuro practice management course, they, the uh, students do get introduced to vestibular rehabilitation. They learn um, the They've had the basic anatomy and physiology in neuroanatomy. They've had uh, they have common uh, peripheral disorders. Um, they go through the ocular motor exam, hands-on lab skills, um, treating of gaze stability deficits, postural stability deficits, and posterior canal BBPV. And that's it for the basic. Um, if they want to go on, then we have we don't call them electives, they're advanced practice courses, but um, they can take two different electives with me. We go through all the different variants of uh, BBPV. We talk more about concussion. We talk more about central disorders, vestibular migraine, 3PD, vestibular function testing, cervicogenic dizziness. So we just kind of take it up the additional levels. Um, so yeah, it's kind of 
uh, you know, depending on where you're in school, what the faculty know, um, will probably in their kind of philosophy on what's entry level, it will change a lot. So, but I I think, go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder how many of your students graduate, move on, eventually find themselves in the vestibular world in some way, shape, or form, and then they think, man, I should have taken those those advanced, whatever they were called, electives, right? Because to be able to have you teaching all that in DPT school, I think is more likely unheard of for most students out there. The one thing I can really remember from my DPT schooling was learning Dix Hall Pike and the Apley Maneuver. And that's the only thing I can really remember from that. The rest of my knowledge really came from getting out in the field and, and learning. I worked under Tara Denham at NYU initially. So learning in the field, actually. So to, to hear that at Duke, you get such, you get an opportunity to learn so much is really yeah. remarkable. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if you, if you're not in a vestibular specific practice, the things you will likely run into will be posterior canal BBPV and maybe some vestibular neuritis and thing, and occasionally, you know, maybe a bilateral vestibular loss. So I don't, you know, in terms of general practice, uh, you know, general PT practice, I, I don't know that you need to know all the different forms of BBPV. You, you should be able to recognize kind of the common things. And if you can treat those great, and then if it's not common or if it's a central disorder or something like that, know enough to refer the patient on to either a PT, a colleague that knows more about vestibular or medical evaluation. So So now that they're, so they're, we're graduated from the DPT program. Uh, You're a young therapist, you're starting out in the field and you're starting to recognize this need for vestibular therapy, or maybe your clinic has come up with a great idea of sending you to a weekend course so you could become their resident vestibular therapist. What are some um, courses that you might recommend to kind of get their feet wet or where could somebody find a beginner's class? What what should they look for when looking into a a good class to start getting into this? Um, yeah, there are lots of classes out there now, both online and, and virtual. I mean, um, in, coming back to in-person classes. Um, I mean, I think personally, I think the class should cover anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, clinical exam, and then treatment of unilateral loss, bilateral loss, motion sensitivity, and BBPV. I mean, that would kind of, that's certainly not everything, but that would put you in pretty good stead to start about or evaluating more patients and treating more patients. Um, And I I think personally, I think most classes you're looking to really have a good course. It should be a two day course or a weekend course. Um, I've been asked to do courses for like, half day or one day, and it's always a question of what can I put in that makes this person um, somewhat competent in the clinic, but so they know enough to treat basic things, but know enough to recognize what they don't know. And that's in a short time frame, that's really challenging. Um, I mean, the other thing is the question then is who's instructing it? 
Um, and that's a little bit harder to answer. Uh, I would, so I have kind of two suggestions. Look at the literature, who's publishing, um, because they should be fairly knowledgeable um, in it. Um, even if you just looked at the recently published clinical practice guidelines, there's a lot of people who, who are, um, a lot of authors in that. Those folks would all be you know, knowledgeable individuals. Um, look at people who've written chapters and books and things like that. Um, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, we do have, as you alluded to, we do have this week-long vestibular rehabilitation course. Um, it's now run through Duke, but we still hold it at the Emory Conference Center just because it's a great facility. You can always look at the faculty that are there and recognize that those folks are um, selected, handpicked, if you will, um, because of their teaching ability, their knowledge level, uh, and the fact that they're, they're good clinicians. So. For all you vestibuloholics out there, it is like vestibular summer camp. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> it's like it's it's six days, and it, you you stay the conference center. You eat with everybody that you're attending with, and it's just phenomenal. You get practicals at the end of each day. You get to sit for a test at the end of the week with both written and video exam. It is truly the most complete vestibular boot camp I think that you can go to. Um, in my personal opinion, I definitely recommend that you should go to this course, the Emory course uh, through Duke, um, with having some background and experience. Uh, yeah. You want to make sure you have a good handle on treating this patient population before you dive into the deep end. Does that sound about a fair assessment? Yeah, it's not. It's definitely, it's not designed as a um, introductory course. Um, we really expect that you've had some reasonable coursework in um, vestibular rehabilitation, um, either in school or outside of school or a combination of the two and experience seeing patients with uh, vestibular disorders. Um, you know, without giving away trade secrets, we actually changed the wording in the, the blurb for the course where we require, um, you know, uh, you know, vestibular coursework as well as at least a year's worth of experience. Um, we don't check on that, <laughs> but we found that when it was just strongly recommended that people have coursework in this, they wouldn't. We'd have people coming in without any experience in vestibular rehab, and that was is for those folks. It's just overwhelming because we, you know, we kind of hit the ground running with anatomy physiology. We don't have a whole lot of time to kind of take people through things. And um, so, you know, it's a bit like drinking from a fire hydrant or maybe even two fire hydrants if you're not familiar with um, vestibular anatomy, physiology, patients, treatments, et cetera. Yeah, it might feel like summer camp for those who have that experience. It would be more like a boot camp for those with no experience going to that course. The course is amazing, though. Just like Danny, I highly recommend it. So looking really at beginner courses and then going to the Duke-held uh, course at Emory University as more on the advanced side or as you're getting to see more and more patients, that might be later on in your development. What other resources do you recommend? You talked about a few when you first started speaking on this topic, but what resources do you recommend outside of courses in particular for those interested in vestibular rehab? 
So I, I think a couple of things. One is I mean, you can if you can form a local journal club um, or community journal club. Um, that's always a good way to meet other other PTs or other clinicians involved in this and, and go through literature, talk through cases, things like that. Um, the vestibular special interest group in the, um, the uh, Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy is as uh, weekly um, suggested um, articles to read um, with a summary at the end. Um, there are other vestibular courses um, through the APTA and through the, through the, Amer the uh, Academy of Neurology. Um, the American Balance Society is another way to get into it from a clinical standpoint um, and going through journal clubs there and attending those, those conferences. It's really um, the conference like CSM or um, the ABS, the American Balance Society Conference, are nice ways to just network with other folks who are interested in vestibular disorders um, and treatment. I, uh, is there any specific virtual courses that you personally recommend um, you found have been uh, a great resource for people who are trying to dip their toes in and get started in anything or um, you have no personal preference? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I teach I teach weekend continuing education courses, some of which lately they've been virtual and some are pre-recorded. Um, I, I'm going to list people and I'm going to leave some people out. So I apologize to those that folks I leave out. Um, but Danny, I think you mentioned Jeff Walter. Um, he's a great teacher, um, knowledgeable. He has um, really nice courses. Um, uh, other people that I know, and these are people that are involved in the the vestibular rehab course through Duke um, slash Emory slash it's really it's co-sponsored by Duke and the APTA which I should put the APTA plug in there um, so Laura Morris teaches courses that are good Sue Whitney teaches courses and she's really good um, Janine Holmberg teaches courses um, if you're interested in peds um, Rose Ryan Jennifer Christie and Lisa Farrell have a, a, a vestibular rehab course for peas. They're all good. Um, I know I'm going to offend somebody by not mentioning them. Well, where <laughs> so, can, where can our listeners find you you and your courses? Um, so most of the courses that the weekend courses I do are through a company called Education Resources. Uh, Education Resources Incorporated, um, and you can find me on there. Um, I do do other courses sometimes for state chapter meetings and things like that. So. This is great. We'll be sure to link um, a lot of the resources that you had mentioned in our show notes so that people who are curious can click around. Um, you know, yep. We're definitely big advocates for the APTA and the vestibular SIG there. I love getting their emails with all of the abstracts of the week. It kind of keeps me up to date on all the up-to-date um, research that's coming out. They, too, have a podcast where they have other guests come on and talk about the research that they've been working on recently. Um, a lot of those virtual courses can be found with all those wonderful people you mentioned on MedBridge. Um, I think, you know, that's a really good, we, we've got a lot of resources available to us now where people can kind of start to dive in and really start to love vestibular the way that we do. 
The other thing is to mention relative to the APTA and the Academy of Neurology is there is a, um, a NeuroPT listserv um, and they'll post patients or individuals will post questions, not patients, but um, clinicians will post questions on there and that usually leads to discussion. They're not always vestibular related, but there's a fair number that are. So, I definitely recommend too getting onto some Facebook groups. Like I know um, Jennifer Christie and Rose Ryan have a little Facebook pediatric group that you can post questions about. There's a busyness enthusiast, enthusiast group on Facebook. Um, there's other places where a lot of the people that you had mentioned are present and helping out with other clinicians answering questions with anything that comes up. So make sure that you have a mentor or somebody to talk to, bounce ideas off of, a coworker. I think that's really, really great advice. Yeah, I would agree with that. Sometimes the conversations you have in the clinic with your coworkers are the most beneficial learning experiences that you can have. And if you're in the position where you're maybe the only one in your clinic that deals with vestibular uh, rehab, certainly reaching out in those Facebook groups, contacting Danny or I on social media, always a good place to start. Let's shift gears now. So we're going to wrap up what makes a good vestibular clinician and how to become one? And let's move on to. Wait, can, I one, can I add one more thing? Sorry. Yes. So, so, actually, if you are in a hospital setting um, and there are otolaryngologists, ear, nose, and throat physicians, or neurologists who are seeing people with dizziness, they are usually um, happy to have you come join them in clinic. Um, they they look for people they look for PTs to or OTs to you know do the vestibular rehab. So if you happen to be in that type of setting, go ahead and reach out to them. And I guess that we should also mention that you know we're all very biased because all three of us are physical therapists, um, but there are people that are occupational therapists and audiologists who also work with patients who are dizzy and addressing them. So um, if you guys are listening and you're not a physical therapist, we apologize if this got very physical therapy heavy. Um, but we do also recommend that if you're a physical therapist, making sure that you team up with uh, the audiologists in your area, because as you see in our next part of our talk, our talk today, um, you know, audiological testing, vestibular testing can be a really, really important key part to how you develop a treatment plan for your patient. So without further ado, Abby, let's jump into our function test half of our episode. Yeah, I think the main question to start with here is what are vestibular fun function tests? All right. So these, there's a series of uh, different laboratory tests that are done um, primarily to identify is this a peripheral, is there a vestibular abnormality? If so, is it a peripheral, means affecting the inner ear, or is it a central um, abnormality affecting some of the uh, vestibular pathways? Um, so they're used as a diagnostic tool or, or an aid for, diagno for diagnosis. The, the main, I'm going to go start going into them again. All right. The main one is uh, what's typically referred to as a VNG. Um, VNG stands for video nystagmography. All it means is that they're using a video-based system to record your eye movements during a variety of different tests. Um, 
the old standard was ENG, where they use electrodes to measure your eye movements, but now with the advent of, of high-speed video systems, as most clinics are using, or most testing labs are using video-based systems. Um, the VNG in and of itself uh, it has a battery of tests. They'll, they'll do an ocular motor evaluation, they'll look at saccades, they'll look at smooth pursuit, they'll look at optokinetic nystagmus, they'll look at spontaneous um, and gaze of nystagmus, positioning and positional nystagmus. And then the main thing, uh, or one of the big parts of the test, the, the one that patients always remember, is what's called a caloric test, where they are uh, inducing or they're putting a thermal stimulus into the patient's ear canal. It's either water or air, and it's usually warm water or, or a warm substance and then cool, either water or air. The warm water um, will excite the, har the horizontal canal on one side, the cold water will inhibit it, and so you get different patterns in the stagmus. They measure how fast the eyes are moving. They compare the response on the right side to the response on the left side. And there's some formulas that they use to figure out, is there a weakness on one side or the other, or are both sides weak? So it'll help identify a unilateral loss or unilateral receiver hypofunction and bilateral receiver hypofunction. So by the way, so by the way, a, uh, a positive test, meaning that there would be some sort of weakness, would be a reduced response. So if you do have nystagmus and symptoms associated with it, that's actually telling us that you have some function going on there. Yeah. I mean, it can, there are rare cases where you can have, for example, a cerebellar disorder and have increased responses on both ears, but that's, that's rare. And as Abby said, yeah, that's the you actually want to generate nystagmus with this test. You want to see nystagmus. You want the patient to be dizzy. Um, and a lot of times patients will come back in and say, yeah, it's my right ear that's the bad ear. And you say, why do you say that? And they said, well, when they put the water in my right ear, I got really dizzy, it reproduced my symptoms. When I did my left ear, I didn't feel anything at all. And it's like, you were supposed to feel that on the right ear. So actually the right ear is the good ear, the left ear, the one where you didn't feel anything is the one that's abnormal. And then the calorics, they look at the function of technically the horizontal canal, correct? So that's correct. looking at a function of the vestibular organ to a certain degree, it sounds like. Yeah, to, to one part mm -hmm. at one kind of low frequency or low acceleration stimulus. So so there's, uh, a, there's a chance that somebody could have vestibular dysfunction or something going on with that inner ear, but have a normal VNG because it's a different part of the inner ear that the VNG can't pick up, right? Yes, exactly. And that's why we have more tests. Yeah. So um, the, the next kind of most common test that's probably done these days uh, is the, what's called the VEMP test. VEMP, it stands for Vestibular Evoked Myogenic Potential. There are two. There's a cervical VEMP and an ocular VEMP. The cervical VEMP, they put electrodes onto the sternocleidomastoid muscle, the muscles contracted, they put tone bursts or clicks into the ear. The, the auditory stimulus will actually ex, um, excite the saccule on that side, and then that has an inhibitory projection to the sternocleidomastoid. So they look, they're looking at 
the saccule or this reflex between the saccule and the sternocleidomastoid for this, what they call the C-vamp or the cervical vamp. The O-vamp, um, they record, they put little electrodes right underneath your eye, little surface electrodes, and um, again, different patterns of stimulation, but that's actually looking at the otolith, uh, a projection from the otolith on the other side to the eye muscle, to the inferior, what's called the inferior oblique eye muscle. And um, so again, that's looking at, so one's looking at the saccule, one's looking at the utricle. Um, and then the, and again, basically they're looking to see, are there, are you getting response on both sides from both ears? Um, and then the other thing that's probably done, that's done commonly is what's referred to as the video head impulse test or the V-HIT. Um, these are high velocity, high acceleration, head rotations, and you can do it to test the horizontal canal, you can do it to test the anterior canals, you can do it to test the posterior canals. So you, you get the option, the ability to test all different components or at least evaluate all different components of the vestibular system with this battery of tests. And that V-HIT is like a head thrust test, right? But you're using yeah. the, the video technology to pick up on little things that maybe we wouldn't be able to pick up bedside. And again, right. it's kind of like thrusting into all different planes of the different canals. So you can do your, your rotational for your horizontal, and you can add in for the posterior, anterior, and those functional pairs, it sounds like. Yeah, so it'll record the eye movement. So you can, you can compare how fast the eyes are moving compared to how fast the head is moving. There are norms established for that. It'll demonstrate corrective saccades, which sometimes we can see clinically, but sometimes those corrective saccades occur so early or uh, during the actual head thrust that we clinically you wouldn't see it. So. And then the only, uh, well, I guess the next test um, done not as frequently uh, is a rotary chair test where they strap you in a chair in a dark room and they spin you around. Um, again, testing horizontal canal function, but being able to test at a range of different frequencies. Um, probably the, the ideal way to look for bilateral vestibular loss um, is the rotary chair test, but it's not done as commonly. Not as many clinics have that testing equipment. And then I mean, dynamic posturography, some clinics, but that's, that's really more of a functional assessment than a true diagnostic test. So we're vestibular therapists. We have a patient come into our clinic or we're seeing them virtually, whatever it is, and they haven't had any of these tests done. Is that going to be a problem for us or can we still evaluate and treat this patient? I can still evaluate and treat them. Um, I, I guess the, the if, if you're thinking about what is a critical test to have um, for somebody, who's coming in with dizziness, I'd probably step back away from the vestibular function tests and make sure if they have any sense of hearing loss that they get an audiogram. And even if they don't have hearing loss, getting, a, getting their hearing screened is a good idea. Um, just to make sure there's no underlying hearing loss that might be due to something like a vestibular schwannoma or acoustic diploma or something along those lines. But we can certainly, aside from that, we can certainly um, evaluate and, and treat and come up with appropriate treatment plans for individuals with vestibular disorders without having the VNG or without having the vestibular function test done. 
Um, I think it's funny. We have a we have monthly meetings here uh, with the vestibular team, and and one day one day. The otologist asked, he said, what do you do with the vestibular function tests? He said, or do, or do you need them or use them? I said, I look at them, but I don't need them. The, the diagnosis doesn't drive my treatment. Um, what drives my treatment is what I see on the clinical exam, patient symptoms, their functional limitations, abnormal DVA, head motion provoked symptoms, whatever it may be. Um, Vestibular function tests are nice. You know, I kind of confirm sometimes what I see on exam. Um, it, in cases of a bilateral vestibular problem, if I see that, the, for example, the caloric test generated nystagmus, that tells me that there is responsiveness in that ear, um, which may, may not change my initial treatment plan but knowing, seeing how the patient does and knowing that they have some remaining vestibular function, I might push that, that person a little bit harder trying to tap into those remaining vestibular cues as compared to somebody who comes in, they do the caloric test, they do the rotary chair test, they do V-hit, and you're, you're seeing basically no response whatsoever. You know, my, my goals there would be a little bit different or my expectations for recovery would be a little bit different in that case. And... Um, and the other thing is that the, the, the VNG, since they're looking at eye movements, so they probably a little bit, they're probably better at picking up um, subtle um, central, central disorders as compared to what we can do with our clinical exam. And again, that's gonna change your, not necessarily your treatment approach, but probably your expectations. Is there anything, so the VEMP test is a great way of looking at uh, the staccule and inferior vestibular yeah. nerve. And is there anything that we can do bedside that also tests that, or is that really kind of the only test that we can look at the staccular function? Um, that's pretty much it. Um, people have tried to do what they call head heaves. Now this wouldn't be for the staccule, but for the utricle. So they try and do a head thrust rather than with a rotary rotational movement with a just a lateral movement. Yeah. Um, sort of like the Egyptian dance. I think. Um, it's a bit, it's challenging to do that. And if your patient has really limited cervical range, it's going to be really challenging. Um, there's some literature out there that suggests that maybe subject to visual vertical changes could be related to utricular dysfunction, but they can also be related to central problems. And I think you'd be hard pressed just from the subject to visual vertical test to say, oh, it's the utricle that's involved, so. So we as physical therapists in our initial evaluation are not performing these tests. Who is? Um, typically audiologists will. Um, some places they train technicians to do them, um, but they have to be a a well-trained technician has to be able to think through things. So generally, um, most clinics these days, it's audiologists that are doing the, the tests and, and the interpretation. And just a side note too, um, of course, we've established and know for sure that we can treat patients without this battery of tests. Is there any patient though that comes to you and uh, hasn't had the testing that you might say, mm, I really actually do want to take a look at this? Yeah, um, occasionally uh, um, I'll see folks and 
their clinical exam is not really clear, or I think maybe there's a little bit of a bilateral vestibular loss, but I'm hard, it's hard pressed to tell. Um, and yeah, I'll make recommendations that they get the testing done. It's not often, but it does occur. Just, you know, if, if it's a diagnostic puzzle, the testing is very, it can be helpful with that. So. And these types of clinics that do a broad range of these different types of tests, are they easy to find? Um, do you have any uh, uh, advice for physical therapists or patients who are looking for a good clinic in order to refer patients to? Um, so I think that most clinics that mention treating dizziness would at least have the capability to do hearing tests, the VNG, and maybe the VEMP tests. Um, certainly, if you go to a, uh, like a more major medical center where they specialize in treating people with dizziness, so there's a, a vestibular clinic, they're likely to have those, more likely to have most of those tests. Um, you can always I mean, actually, a lot of times on the web page, they'll talk about what's involved if you if you're if you're dizzy and you're coming to the Smith Hospital for Balance Disorders. What's going to be, um, you know, what's what's involved in the evaluation? I definitely recommend um, Dr. Timothy Haynes' website for those who might get uh, an entire packet of like a VNG printout with all the tracings and all of the reports and everything yeah. that if you're ever wondering what anything means and you need to quick Google it up, um, dizzinessandbalance.com by Dr. Timothy Haynes is a fantastic resource for all things vestibular, including um, vestibular function tests. Um, so that's yeah. definitely a good place to go if, if you get something and it looks like Chinese and you need to look it up. Yeah, I, I would mention for those in the audience who are into vestibular things, which probably everybody is, and that's listening to this, um, the when when you get a VNG test result report, the report may the person has a unilateral let's say the person has a unilateral vestibular loss, the report may read the patient is well compensated. Now that comp compensation is only related to what we refer to as static compensation and basically means the person doesn't have any sp spontaneous positional or gaze evoking nystagmus as a result of the unilateral vestibular loss. Um, it has nothing to do with how they feel when they're moving around, their balance, etc. So, um, you know, from a, from a therapy standpoint, we may look at them and say, oh, this person is not compensated, but from a, from a VNG standpoint, um, they'll say the patients compensate because they don't have any any residual nystagmus from the, the unilateral vestibular loss. So I think it's, <laughs> don't be thrown off by that. It's definitely worth saying to to not heavily rely on the VNG itself. Look at your patient as they are in front of you and how they are testing in front of you with your bedside test, your gait, your balance testing. Um, you know, primarily as physical therapists, we look at people for function and how the patient functions yeah. and how they're affected in their daily life. I had a woman in her 70s who was uh, still a triathlete. 
So she still needed to be able to do foot turns in the pool and ride a bicycle and be able to run. So my goals for that patient and therapy with her were very different from my other 70 year olds that were coming with vestibular hypofunction and issues. So make sure that you're, you're also doing your own due diligence and you're putting your patient through your own bedside evaluation and, and making your goals and treatment plan according to that. But those vestibular function tests are really, really great to get a better idea of what's going on and if anything else needs to be addressed. But I, I couldn't have said that any better, Danny. <laughs> and one thing just to add on top of that, we many times now have reiterated in our podcast that the history alone, just listening to your patient can give you all sorts of answers and clues as to where you need to go in your treatment. So history, definitely important. Dr. Clint Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our audience find you? <laughs> your courses you don't have to share anything if you don't want to but where can they find um, your courses yeah so most well you could just google me um and now the courses will pop up probably um so again like i said most of the courses that i the weekend courses i teach are through education resources um there's some once in a while it'll be through a specific hospital but generally education resources um i am on a duke uh, DPT webpage, um, and that is the where if you Google um, Duke DPT Continuing Education, that's where you'll find information about the vestibular rehabilitation and competency-based course. Again, which we typically offer um, in the spring at the Emory Conference Center and Hotel, um, but we typically also offer it summer, early fall, um, out west. Um, so Salt Lake City or LA, it's the same course. It's the, the West Coast courses are smaller in number, um, usually averaging 60 to 70 people um, or participants as opposed to close to 200 um, at the Atlanta course. So it's a subset of the faculty um, in um, LA or, or Salt Lake City. So we don't have dates posted yet, uh, but we're looking at doing the course in Salt Lake City um, kind of mid to late August this year. So, but that information will be up there soon. Good. We'll be sure to link everything in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time tonight. I think you uh, gave us a lot of valuable information for our listeners as well as us. And we, we really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Daniel, and thank you, audience, for joining us. We'll see you again next time. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and beep and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.